welcome to another episode of the Making Sense of Islam podcast. A few housekeeping points before we begin. Every episode is accompanied by episode notes that highlight everything I've referenced. So people, verses, hadith, etc. They're all in the episode notes, which you can find at makingsenseofislam.com. Most of the episodes are short form, so the notes are few. But when you listen to longer form episodes, the notes are meant to be a resource and an aid. Number two. I would really appreciate it if you could rate the podcast on whatever platform you use and leave a comment, hopefully positive. And number three, every Friday I send out a short email called Coexist Ruminations that shares what I'm working on and reading in my four focus areas. If you'd like to receive these, please sign up by going to makingsenseofislam.com forward slash Friday. That's it for now. Enjoy the show. If you have ever spent time studying any of the Islamic sciences, one of the patterns that becomes clear is the attention scholars in the past gave to documenting principles, axioms, rules, aphorisms, etc. In almost every discipline, you will find these catalogued, all with the aim of making the study of that particular discipline easy. So, rather than always having to start with a minutia and then making sense of it, students typically learn these principles which provide important frameworks to make sense of it all. Now, while these principles are usually for students and experts of these fields, I believe that many Muslims seeking to make sense of Islam require their own set of first principles through which they can approach Islam as a religion and discipline of study and also draw conclusions that are both at one with the fundamentals of the faith and also compatible with our current condition. In this series, And at this point, I'm not exactly sure how long it's going to be, but I will say at least 10 episodes. I want to highlight some of these first principles that help us create a mental framework through which we can make sense of Islam today. Enjoy. So in thinking about making sense of Islam today, one of the challenges that one confronts is what do you do with the past? In Arabic, we call this, or we refer to the past, our intellectual past, that is, as the Torah, our tradition. And it's always an issue. We have this enormous tradition. We have nearly 1,500 years of scholarship. We have hundreds of thousands of books authored by some of the greatest minds that our religion, our faith community has produced, extensive commentaries, glosses, nuances, insights, etc., etc., etc. All of that, what do we do with that vis-a-vis the here and now, vis-a-vis the today? And I remember when I was doing my graduate work, I had spent a lot of time looking at the 19th century and early 20th century, predominantly in Egypt, but also a little bit in the subcontinent and parts of North Africa. And I remember at that time, it was so tumultuous. There was so much tension of the old versus the new. And when I would even read secondary literature, what we refer to as secondary literature, you know, literature that's about that period, there were almost... It was almost cast as like this battle of of the, the old and the new, the battle of the old and the new, and it was almost described as the battle of good versus bad, 
light versus darkness. You know, good being forward-thinking modernity uh, in the political uh, discourse, democracy, or representative government. And that also carried over to other branches of the religion. So things of how people dressed, how people ate, how people lived their lives. Um, As there was this very close encounter with Europe, which all actually historically, there's always been a close encounter between Islam and, and Europe because of the geographic proximity. But this idea that Europe is ahead, we quote unquote are behind uh, therefore, we must adopt what they have so we can get ahead. You know, that, that type of thinking. It was very clear. And it was very clear, but there was always something a little bit off to me in the sense that I mean, it, can't be, it can't be just black and white. I mean, you, you can't throw away <laughs> all of our tradition. Uh, it can't all be bad. It can't all be useless. It can't be all uh, part of the quote-unquote darkness I mean, just as a reflex, I, w- I would read those. And some of these authors were Muslim authors. And some of these authors are, are, were hailed at their times. And, and s- many of them till today are you know, hailed as you know, reformers. You, you'll hear about the reformers of Islam, etc. So this is a very common theme. And for people of our generation, even now, in 2019, uh, when I'm recording this, and, and, and you know, plus or minus... The, the years on either end of, of the recording date, we inherit that narrative. That undoubtedly, if we are serious about our Islam, if, we, if it's a major part of our life, we are going to come across this type of thinking in, in some way, shape, or form. What do we do with the past? How do we deal with our tradition versus the here and now? Another way... Uh, of saying it or other ways people discuss it. Is Islam relevant today? Can Islam be relevant today? But Islam was revealed so long ago in a different context. How, how, is that context, uh, re- how does that context relate to today's context? Today's context is completely different. People are completely different, etc. That type of tension. Now sometimes when people say that, to be fair, I think it's a genuine inquiry. It's a, de- it's a, it's a genuine set of questions. And when you study the legal sciences, especially usul al-fiqh, and you're training to be able to issue religious judgments, you know, fatwas, non-binding religious opinions, that's, that's what you do. You are asking very clearly, openly, transparently asking those questions because that's the job of the jurist, that's the job of the fuqih, that's the job of the mufti. And ultimately, the job of the mujtahid is to, you know, link those. And I've, and as I've stated in, in previous episodes, but sometimes that line of inquiry is negative in the sense that it assumes that the past is bad. It assumes that the past was dark. It assumes that the, the you know, the past is backwards, and holding us, quote unquote, us back. That type of narrative. So I think that you know we have to be fair. That it, it can be a genuine line of inquiry, and it can also be a little problematic now why am i you know, what's all this introduction about i mean because i think this is one of our principles one of our meta principles is how do we grapple with the past vis-a-vis today how do we make sense of islam today and at the same time honor and respect the past so one way of looking at it that i think is helpful is to take a lesson that we have from fiqh from jurisprudence in which we are taught 
that there are four things that are always changing. Time, place, people, circumstance. And as those things change, the application of certain rulings of Islam that pertain to those four areas will, will can, might change or might be modified simply because life is changing. And that's why this whole you know, enterprise, the podcast, the website, everything, I call it making sense of Islam because that's sort of my layman's way of articulating that, is that we are always changing, life is changing, circumstances change. You might be listening to this and you might be living as a minority in the West. You might be living, listening to this and you, you live in the heartland of the Muslim world. You might be listening to this and you live in the heartland of the Muslim world, but you feel like a minority around your family, around your community, etc., so these things are all changing. Things are not very, they're not set in stone vis-a-vis time, place, people, and circumstance. So our tradition acknowledges that. However, one of the interesting things is that the majority of the time period from which our tradition comes, life, even though it changed, it didn't change that much. Which is why People would read, you know, Imam al-Ghazali, who died in the 6th century of Islam, read Imam al-Ghazali, you know, several centuries later, and it would still be relevant. Because life, I mean, there were changes, to be sure, I'm not saying there were no changes, but they weren't drastic changes like what we have witnessed in the last 200 years, or even in the last 100 years, or even in the last 50 years, in which there's a rapid, rapid change of technology that has fundamentally altered a lot of our day-to-day life, even from the construction of our homes to how we dress, to how we work, to what we eat, how we eat, etc. So, because of the rapid amount of change in the last bit of time, the time that we, listening to this, were born into, this is where this question becomes somewhat of an issue. Is, is Islam relevant? Whereas before it wasn't as much as a pressing issue because, as I said, things were agrarian-based, uh, politics was, and the nature of government was generally the same, etc., etc., etc. In this regard, therefore, since some things change, I think it's important to make this, the following distinction to help answer this question, what is our attitude towards the past? which is we need to differentiate between the issues that were discussed in our tradition and the methodology used to arrive at those issues. In other words, the issues that are discussed, what we call in the Islamic legal discourse the masail, the issues that are discussed or the rulings that are generated, are a function of those things that change. So they are, in a sense, cast in that time, in that place, in those peoples, in those circumstances. And those issues might not necessarily work for us today. For example, one of the legal works that I studied was the gloss of Imam al-Bayjuri in Shafi law popularly known as Hashiyat al-Bayjuri and he says when he discusses the obligations of husband and wife he has this very funny line that says uh, and a man also needs to provide his wife 
with coffee and tobacco if that's what she's used to. And I remember, you know, highlighting it and, you know, flagging it in the book and the teacher, you know, making a whole lesson at it. At that time that he wrote that book, that was what was normal. But that doesn't necessarily apply today. Uh, I'm here, I'm speaking about the tobacco part, not necessarily the coffee part. Because the Olamas understanding of tobacco, the production of tobacco itself, has evolved. And almost all major fatwa bodies, muftis, ulama, opine that uh, tobacco use is something that is impermissible. And if that's the opinion that we hold to, then that issue that Imam al-Bajuri discusses wouldn't be relevant for us today. But the methodology behind that is that as a husband, you need to provide your wife with what she's used to. That's the idea. And so that is relevant because that's timeless. That's just a principle. But the result in that minor issue that he's discussing might be something that is confined with that that circumstance, that time, etc. So I think when people criticize the past, and look, there's room for critique. I'm not saying that the past is not infallible. The only thing that's infallible for us is the Prophet So we should be open and recognize that there is room for critique. There, there are things that we might come across that we might disagree with or have a, a nuanced understanding of. But we need to differentiate between the issues and the methodology. So what people oftentimes when they say, oh, Islam is backwards, the past is darkness, it's holding us back, etc. I think what they're doing is they're confusing the two. They're only looking at the issues and not looking beyond the issues to the principles, the first principles used to derive those rulings in the first place. What I'm, what I'm speaking of as our, method, our interpretive methodology, what we call in Arabic al-manhaj, al-manhaj al-ilmi. What is our interpretive methodology to arrive at these rulings? to arrive at these conclusions, to arrive at that understanding. Now that methodology, that's timeless because they're just a set of first principles. As a matter of fact, by definition, those principles are outside of the, constr- of the things that change or else they wouldn't be principle. You couldn't form a principle that way. And many times, we use those principles across Islamic disciplines. So many principles, for example, in, in the subject that I'm, I was, I'm used to and I read the most in you know, Islamic law, many of the Islamic legal principles are used in matters of ethics. And you'll read in the book of ethics a principle, uh, and if you've never read Islamic law, you would think it's a moral principle, but its origin is Islamic law, because it has legal applications, for example, and vice versa. You, you know, you'll find the opposite will be true. There'll be an ethical principle that finds its way in the canon of Islamic law and used as a first principle. So, what we need to do is we need to ask ourselves, what is necessary for us now? That's what we have to concern ourselves with. We can't concern. We can't live in the time of Imam al-Ghazali. We can't go back in time and live that time. Meaning, we can't live in his time, place, person, and circumstance. But we certainly can take the principles that Imam al-Ghazali used to construct this, you know, wonderful, amazing, you know, almost one can even say magical book, Ahya al And he's just one of the people that comes to mind now. But I mean, there are, you know, hundreds of other ulama and luminaries that we can look to in the past. We can't live in their time period. We can't live the life that they lived. Because that's in time and we are in time. So we need to find out what's necessary for us now. But 
we can certainly use those methodologies, those interpretive methodologies, to think the way that they thought, to approach the Qur'an and the Sunnah, the way they approach the Qur'an and the Sunnah, to make sense for, for ourselves today. And that's what we have to do. Because that's exactly what they did. And that's the key. When we read those books of the past, or we come across these issues that are historic, what we also need to recognize is that's exactly what they were doing. They were making sense of Islam for their time period. That was what they had to do then. And that was the extent of their conclusions. And then, you know, they just moved, lived with it and moved on. Therefore, we have to do the same thing. So it's this balance of respecting the past, i.e. respecting its methodology, respecting first principles, respecting that intellectual tradition of interpretation, etc. And that's something that we inherit. There's nothing wrong with that. We don't want to cut ourselves off from that treasure. But at the same time, not necessarily taking all of those issues because those issues are stuck in time. Now, some of those issues don't change. You know, you have to make wudu before you pray. There's not, there's not a whole lot of wiggle room there. Um, and as a matter of fact, in many of the areas of acts of worship, you know, fasting is fasting. Uh, there's not much more for us to discuss. But by way of uh, human interaction, social interaction, uh, commerce, government, minority status, etc., all of these things that are you know, very much now in, in the realm of the discussion in the public uh, square, as we say, those are issues that we need to you know, spend a little bit more time thinking. But again, not rejecting the past, completely taking its, its methodology, its interpretive methodology, and applying it the way it was applied. Sort of the last thing I want to say about this principle, just to round out the, the conversation, the discussion, is going back to the critiques. Now here, I'm, I'm not saying the critique that is healthy, but the critique that just says, well, all of Islam is bad, all of it's irrelevant, you know, it's darkness, backward, you know, uh, held us back from advancement, etc. One of the things, one of the themes I noticed about those, those discussions, particularly those who are sort of within the family of Islam trying to in some way, shape, or form demonstrate that they are quote-unquote reformers. I have found, I'm not going to say all the time, but I mean it's pretty close. I mean a very high percentage of the time. They have read about the tradition. They have not read in the tradition. And that's a huge, huge, huge issue uh, that really de deserves its own maybe complete like series of episodes to discuss which I'm not maybe I'll make a note of it we can do it in the future but I definitely don't want to do that here I just want to touch on it and I want to give an example going back to the Bejuri gloss Hashi that I mentioned earlier I mean we spent a lot of time looking at that book line by line large sections of the books that you know I was able to attend and the book is definitely a book of history in the sense that Imam al-Bayjudi is referencing things that were common at his time uh, in the 1800s in, in Egypt. Now those things are not necessarily common today. I remember many times he would use vocabulary that was unfamiliar to the students. And the sheikh would you know, make us go back to the dictionary and look those things up and understand what they are. Or sometimes we would take a tour of old parts of Cairo to understand i remember uh, when talking about neighborhoods and balconies and and the rule the rules and regulations about those things 
no one understood what those meant because people are living in modern housing or, or semi-modern housing. So we'd have to go to the old part of the city to understand, you know, he'll point out this, that, you see this, you see that, that's what he's referring to in the book, etc. That's reading in the tradition. And because we were trained in the tradition, we can make this distinction between methodology and issues, and we can benefit from one without having to take the other if it's not applicable. Whereas people who only read about the tradition... They are making these overarching, open-ended statements, absolutisms, and rejection of everything or large parts of the tradition without really knowing what they're talking about. And that's something we have to be, be wary of. If you want to critique in a healthy way, if you want to take but leave behind certain things, you have to be in that playing field. You have to be in that sandbox. You have to understand and read in the tradition and understand how those people thought. Because when you get into the details, you really, really have a lot of appreciation for what these people did. I mean, the fact that they took the time and the energy to discuss all of those issues that were relevant at their time, in their place, in their circumstance, with their people, it deserves a lot of respect. Oftentimes, much, much more effort they placed in understanding than we do today. Even though we have all this technology and all of this ease, I mean, you can almost get any Islamic book online as a PDF. You, you could have a lot. I know people that have uh, hard disks that have over a million books, uh, just, you know, sitting a couple terabytes and they have all of their Islamic, you know, manuscripts and books and library sitting right there at, at their on their desk. But I mean, what good is that going to do if we don't take the time to meticulously go through everything? So we don't want to be the people that talk about the tradition without knowing what's in the tradition. And, you know, this might sound a little harsh, but look, there are some people that do that. And a lot of those people, and I, I don't like to, you know, say names or anything like that because it's not about pointing out certain people, but a lot of these people do come from Western academia where, I mean, I remember there are people, if you look at a, a sophisticated, uh, you know, academic grade uh, book or article about a given topic in the field of quote-unquote Islamic studies. What percentage of sources are they quoting are secondary sources versus primary sources? When you look at the early Orientalists, you know, they were almost exclusively qu quoting primary sources because they were simply because there were almost nothing was translated when they were writing. But each generation of Orientalists slash Western academics of Islamic studies, they increase the amount of secondary literature that they rely on and decrease the amount of primary. Not all people. I'm not saying every single... It's not, I'm not saying an absolute like rule and principle, but it's, it's there. It's definitely common. I mean, I saw it firsthand. And I remember when I would write, not that I'm an example of excellent academic writing or anything like that but i remember one of my main criticisms that i would receive is that i do not pay enough attention to the secondary literature because the idea is well these issues have been discussed in the secondary literature so you have to also discuss them as well which is fair that's true if somebody has written about you know if you're writing a book or a paper about uh, ibn farid uh you know the great sufi poet uh, you need to know what other people have said about it, who's translated what poems in what European languages for you to be a proper scholar of that subject. I agree with that. But at the end of the day, you have to know the primary sources like the back of your hand. 
And that's what I mean about reading about the tradition or reading in the tradition. So when you read in the tradition, the way that the ulama do and spend their, you know, dedicate their entire lives to that, they have the right to then say, okay, this is stuff that we don't need to worry about. It's it's too much uh, confined with, with a certain time, place, circumstance, etc. But this is the methodology or the principles behind it that we can take. And that's where you make that's how you make sense of Islam today. But just to, you know, castigate everything and be like, no, it's, it's useless. We're going to throw it out. We need to start anew. I'm going to go back to the Qur'an and just do everything myself. That That's crazy. <laughs> just to put it simply, that's crazy. So this is... Um, short episode on this idea of the past how do we respect the past by not rejecting the past what do we take from the past what can we leave behind as one of our important principles of making sense of islam today i hope you find it helpful until next time Thank you.